Welcome everyone to episode 47 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Gavin Horn. Now Gavin has got quite the resume. I'm just going to hit the highlights because his resume itself is really a whole ep- entire episode. So he's got his master's in fire protection engineering from the University of Maryland. He holds a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, nearby there, he was a former firefighter engineer with the Savoy, Illinois Fire Department, and he also served as a director of IFSI research programs at the University of Illinois Fire Service Institute. He did that for 15 years. He's currently a research engineer with UL Fire Safety Research Institute. Uh, he's published over 70 peer-reviewed journal manuscripts. There's just so much of his work that even I preach at a regular basis, you know, whether it's going over gross decon or wipes or laundering our gear, he's had a hand in that. You know, he's the science that allows me to talk about that and, and share that with all of our firefighters. So without further ado, let's bring him in and let's talk about some of this stuff. Welcome to the 25 Live. Uh, special guest this week, Dr. Gavin Horn. How are you doing? It's good morning to you and good afternoon to me. All right. Good morning. Yeah, it's great to be uh, to be on the, the podcast with you. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to, to join you from Corvallis, Oregon. I hope everything's going well back there in Dayton. Uh, everything's good here. It's a uh, nice weather. Um, everything's opening up right now. We're we're actually recording this show a little bit early. We're we're taking advantage of everything going on with COVID. It's about the only time that I'm able to track this guy down and actually get him <laughs> to sit with me for an hour or so. So there are some good things that have come out of that, and one of them being this particular podcast right now. So let's jump right into it. Sure. You know, you've been involved in so many different research projects, and there's a ton of things that I know I look at and preach about that, that you did. Probably the, the first thing uh, is all about gross decon. You really got that, that going a few years ago. Do you want to kind of talk about how you got involved with that and, and what some of those results were from there? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, first of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I, I'm very fortunate to be involved with a whole lot of really smart and really uh, forward-thinking researchers and firefighters. Um, you know, in my time at the Illinois Fire Service Institute, uh, we started looking at, at some projects uh, to understand the holistic impacts uh, of, of some of the things that we do on the fire ground as well as on the, the training ground. So um, we actually uh, started working on a project. This, this dates back to 2015 um, when we were trying to bring together some of the, the, the different projects that are being done at Illinois. And at that time, we were really focused quite a bit on the cardiovascular system, uh, understanding the stressors on the fire, grand, uh, fire ground, um, trying to understand what might be the triggers that could uh, make an individual at risk for uh, sudden cardiovascular events or those triggers on the fire ground that those people who are at risk to trigger that event in occurring. And that'd been a history of work we'd done with uh, Denise Smith at, at IFSI. And we're also working with Steve Kerber's team at uh, the UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute to try to bring the work that we had done on a training ground into a more realistic setting, looking at fire dynamics in real structures in, in a typical room and contents fire in a ranch style structure. And at the same time, uh, we were very fortunate to 
to make uh, a much stronger relationship with uh, the team at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And, and Kenny Fent uh, was leading that team to really try to understand what are some of the risks that, that firefighters are facing. So this project came together to try to bring all those pieces together to look at the risks from a typical room and contents fire and how the products of combustion affect not only uh, the exposures that firefighters face, the chemical exposures to the soot and to the vapors and the particulate, but also the heat and how those things impact both the cardiovascular system and potential risks for uh, cancer through uh, potential carcinogenic exposures. And so we wanted to not only look at what are the risks on the fire ground, but what are some of the things that we can do to reduce those risks? And in and, and many of the, the issues that we wanna look at are, are what are the things that you can do with a relatively low budget? What are some of the things that we can do now without a significant investment uh, that could be done on the fire ground? So this is one thing as we're laying out the, the project, uh, Kenny said, you know, we need to really think about what can we do to clean up on the, the back end? Uh, what is the decon procedures? In back at this point, it was still called decon. We still refer to it as gross decon. Um, obviously, as, as you alluded to, uh, we now have begun to refer to this as preliminary exposure reduction. But what are those things that we can do on the fire ground that, that can reduce the risk? And again, everything that we do in the fire, we're, we're in a risk mitigation business. Right? We know that there's risks for firefighters going into the burn buildings, whether it's, it's a fire ground or a training ground. But what are the things that we can do and we're there to reduce the risk for the occupants, for the structures, and then also for the firefighters themselves? So we got a chance to measure what was it in the air, to, to really take a, a look at what is it that the fires were producing. And we really kind of focused on a couple of different classes of, of compounds, uh, PAHs or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and VOCs or volatile organic compounds. Those are the two large classes that we really focused on because we could take measurements of them, not only what, what does a fire produce, but then what gets on the gear and then what gets into the body and how could we measure what is actually exposing, the, the firefighters are actually exposed to. So, we think about what we can measure in the urine. So it got in their body, their body was exposed to it, and then it was excreted through the urine or what we can see out of the breath. Uh, and we could track it, what we kind of refer to the farm to the fork. You know, it's being produced by the fires and it gets its way all the way through uh, the firefighter's body itself. So we could get some measurements, right? Really uh, good measurements, controlled measurements, because we were staging these, these fires at the Illinois Fire Service Institute. We, we were able to measure from beginning to end and we knew what was in there. We knew all of this information and we could start to really get a handle on what is, uh, what is being produced by these. But the decon part really allows us to say, what can we do to reduce that contamination? What can we do to knock that down before we head back to the station to reduce the cross-contamination when, when you happen to touch the outside of your gear with uh, unprotected skin, and then we can have some secondary exposures and some uh, secondary contamination on the, on the firefighter themselves. So that was the goal behind trying to understand what we can do with gross decon or preliminary exposure reduction. Now, there's also a lot of different ways that this can be done. And in the study that uh, was, was published in 2017, and, and, and really this came back from 
from our discussions with firefighters uh, throughout the country, as well as Kenny's uh, look at, at what is being done. Uh, we looked at three different types of, of decon. Uh, the gold standard, or what we, we adopted as, as quote unquote, the gold standard at that point was something similar to a hazmat decon. So we looked at what is commonly done after hazmat responses, and we adopted what was called a wet soap decon. And this is now really what is the preliminary exposure reduction in, in the standard documents. And that's just rinsing down the gear, applying a soap and water solution, brushing that off to try to, to scrub uh, the gear and get rid of, uh, or, or to kind of work that, that soap solution in, and then rinsing it off. That took about two to three minutes per, uh, per individual to do that. Um, but there's also a, a lot of concern from the fire service about, well, now this makes the gear wet. We're gonna have to take the gear out of service. We've got issues that we need to, to understand there. So how effective would we be if all we did was took a brush, eliminated the water, eliminated the soap, and we just brushed the gear off? And so that was another uh, strategy that we looked at. And in the third one, um, there were a lot of folks at this point who were really um, hoping a, an air-based technique could be used to just blow the contamination off of the gear. So whether it's sitting in front of a PPV fan or uh, various different other techniques to, in order to, to, to blow the contamination off of the gear, uh, the group at NIOSH did a lot of research on it. And they used something that was basically adapting a, a leaf blower to, to, to blow the contamination off. So those are the three different types of, uh, of, of decon that we studied in, in that project. There was a kind of a pretty clear winner out of all those different techniques. Yeah, it, it was. Um, we looked at, we actually had 12 different sets of gear that we uh, decontaminated with each of these different techniques. And we were able to, and, and again, what we're focusing on here is just the PAH contamination. So it's polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and we're looking at the surface of the gear. Right, so that's where we're actually doing the decon. And we're interested in the surface because that's, again, what's likely to, to rub off from that surface onto the seats of the apparatus cap or onto the skin when someone would handle that or would cross-contaminate to other places, not necessarily what was embedded into the gear itself. That, that's important, but we're more concerned about, at least in that study, we were concerned about how could this be trans, uh, transported from the fire scene and increasing a risk for others. And we were able to find that on average, um, we were able to get about 85% of that PAH contamination off of the surface with that two to three minute decon or preliminary exposure reduction technique. So that was uh, yeah, far and away the, the largest removal of that surface contamination. Um, the dry brush technique we were able to get about 25%, so about a quarter of the contamination from the surface was able to be removed with that, and, and we really didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of, of effect with the, um, the air-based technique. Um, I think some of the large pieces were removed, but a, a lot of these PAHs are, are relatively sticky, and, and that's one of the reasons why we believe using that uh, the soap in there is, is very useful in terms of, of attaching chemically to some of that contamination, help lifting that away so it can get rinsed away with the water itself. So, so yeah, you're right. There was uh, absolutely a far and away winner on that uh, of, of the three techniques that we focused on right there. Now, this whole study ended up kind of having, kind of grew some legs and went into different areas. You know, I, I kind of think it's, 
one of the reason the, the clean cab concept is a thing now. Um, you know, and we're both involved with NFPA 1585, which is, yep. you know, contamination control, which is really just based off of kind of the study and just expounding on that even. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, that, that was, um, you know, one piece in, the, in, in one component of, of a much larger study, but one that has absolutely received a whole lot of attention. Uh, there, there's a lot of people that are trying to understand, okay, if we can do this to, to improve or, or to reduce the risks for our firefighters, what are the other things that we can do? How can we expand uh, upon the contamination control that we learned from that PER? So that's 85%. Can we get that to 95% or beyond? What are some of those additional things that, that we can do? So there's a lot of people that are looking at other solutions that might be possible to remove more of the contamination. Uh, there's a lot of work going on to understand what are maybe some dry techniques that could be done to reduce some of that contamination on the scene so you don't get the gear wet or, or more wet than it might be after the firefight itself. Even though we didn't study uh, the clean cab concept, uh, that is absolutely an area that ha has really started taking off over the past couple of years. But all of this right now, we're, we're still in the learning phase. And, and you know, I, there's a lot of people who want to make some definitive statements or, or make definitive claims. Um, and and it, we have a lot still to learn before we can make uh, some definitive claims. We used uh, you know, a common dish detergent for uh, the PER that we, uh, we did for the study. There certainly might be other solutions, other surfactants, other types of chemicals that could do a better job in terms of removing some of that contamination. And that's where we need more research. That's where we need to have standardized tests. One of the challenges here is we don't really have a good standardizable test to be able to, to compare soap A versus soap B versus soap C versus whatever that next technique might be, uh, a dry technique, an ozone-based technique, whatever that is. Um, it, it's hard to compare apples to apples at this point, um, but an area where, again, research is going to help us to, to establish some of those tools and techniques. One of the things that uh, I know I've had to, I won't say argue about, but had conversations about, especially working with a lot of departments that work in cold weather climates, whether it be Canada or just heck here in Ohio, is this is not something that you can do when it gets cold. So Florida, no problem, right? But when you were in Illinois or even in Ohio, that can be difficult at times. But you were actually here with me in the city mm -hmm. I live. Beaver Creek was that uh, early 2019? Uh, late 2018, December late 2018. 2018. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we were able to actually witness them do growth decon preliminary exposure reduction while it's in freezing temperatures successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it was great that, that Chief Frank Lieb from FDNY was there to, to document that. And, and I highly recommend for uh, any of your listeners to, to check out that video that he has, has put online because he talks about some of the risk reduction or risk mitigation strategies that you might do when you're doing this preliminary exposure reduction on the fire ground or training ground. And, and yeah, it, in that video, it was 17 degrees that day in doing the preliminary exposure reduction. Just a couple of days before that, I was actually um, on the instructor cadre and I had the opportunity to go through. It was a balmy 22 degrees on that day. 
And I tell you what, there are some important considerations. Uh, one thing we always need to remember is that there's, there's a firefighter inside that gear. Um, and again, we're trying to reduce the risk. So we need to understand that if there's a firefighter who may be having some cold stress issues when we're dealing with that cold weather, we need to keep aware of, of that firefighter that's inside that gear and make sure that they're doing okay physically, psychologically, and they're ready because it, it seems like a small amount of time when you're outside of the gear, but if you've just gone through a firefight, got your vibro alert going off or whatever else uh, might be indicating if you're on low air and you're waiting for four or five minutes or maybe even more to get into the line to do the preliminary exposure reduction and all you wanna do is take a drink of water, it's not the most pleasant experience. So we need to make sure that we understand how you can support the firefighters that are, are waiting to be decon so they can understand the value of it on one hand, but also so you can set things up in that process. So if you have a group coming, maybe setting up multiple lines for the decon so that they can get through it more rapidly and then get into a warming tent when it's very cold outside. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing when it's hot. You said you mentioned Florida, but I tell you what, it also sucks to, to be waiting in line while you're hot and dehydrated and it's 90 degrees outside. Uh, we were actually in um, Sydney, Ohio in June doing the other part of that study. And we also were doing decon right there. And I was fortunate to be in, in a decon line there when it was 90 degrees and humid and hot. And all you wanted to do was get a drink and get that mask off. Uh, so it was challenging. Um, and, and we need to keep track of firefighters who might have heat stress, who might be dehydrated and really need that drink of water and need to be prioritized. And we need to open up those additional lines and put a little bit more resources to this. So planning for that decon process is critically important. You might have those thoughts about when do you open two stations? Some departments have, you know, members decon themselves. So you might ha have to have multiple stations available for them to do that. How quickly can you get water to them? Can you have them clip off of air, depending on the type of SCBA have, you can actually squirt water into their mouth while they're still wearing a mask and clip back in if you have the right equipment available to do those sorts of things. If you know it's going to be freezing, having some ice melt available. So I tell you what, that water, once it hits the ground on the, that cold day at, at Beaver Creek, it got very slippery around there. So we had to have some salt down there, some ice melt available, so we didn't increase the risk for slips, trips, and falls, which, by the way, are one of the leading causes of injuries on the fire ground. So if we're mitigating one risk and adding to other risks, what else can we do to kind of keep that total risk, uh, total risk quantity low? Sure. So there's a lot of things to think about. And there, there probably are conditions where, you know what, it just doesn't make sense to do decon at a certain temperature. But we were able to successfully do it, as you mentioned, at temperatures down, you know, below 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and it, it can be successfully done. But there's other things we need to keep our eye out for to make sure that we don't uh, change that risk profile. Other considerations that you have to keep in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let me kind of see if I can myth bust or something, because I, I hear, again, I'm out everywhere talking about this stuff. Once you do PER, is your gear out of service? That, that, that's been the, the biggest pushback. Um, well, maybe not the biggest push, but one of the, one of the uh, most common questions 
that we've been asked on this from even from the very beginning when we were, were wanting to study the preliminary exposure reduction. That was one of the things that the fire service said, hey, you know, this is a real issue for us. And still get that question on a regular basis. And, and I think it, it's an important conversation to have. <clears throat> I think we need to have that conversation to think about what do you do when your gear is wet, period. What are your standard operating procedures in your department? If you are caught in a rainstorm, say you're out at, at a, you know, a, a multi-vehicle accident and you get caught in rain for, a, for 30 minutes or something, the outer shell of your gear is going to be soaked. Does that take your gear out of service? I think the process that you would use, for the, the decision-making process you would move, use there, you should use after you're doing uh, preliminary exposure reduction. Um, there are um, some concerns out there about what happens when the gear gets wet. And we don't have any good information on that just yet in terms of how that changes your protective properties. But if I think about it from, from my personal experience, what I'm actually more concerned about uh, in terms of risk is moisture on the inside of the gear. So think about when we go to tr through training, you know, maybe multiple days worth of training, you will often sweat very heavily in the inner liner, that, that thermal liner of the gear can get saturated with sweat. And you have a very moist environment inside there. And if we're talking about burn risks, I'm a little bit more concerned about water inside the gear than the water that gets outside of the gear. So if we can train firefighters to do this preliminary exposure reduction in a manner that does not get the water on the inside of the gear. And, and there's a technique to it, just like putting water on a fire, just like putting what, whether it's, it's, it's a car fire, a, a room and contents fire, a structure fire, or a wildland fire, there's different techniques in how you apply water based on the conditions that, that you're in or what you're trying to do with that water. And we can train firefighters in the decon line or in the preliminary exposure reduction line to reduce the risk of that water getting on the inside of that gear. And therefore, we're, we're further reducing uh, some of those risks. So I have, uh, in, in my old department at, at Savoy and, and what we had done at, at IFSI, we had not taken the gear out of service after it had been washed down, just like we would not take the gear out of service after caught in a rainstorm or, you know, quite honestly, you often get wet while you're in fighting the fire, right? There, the water will come down off of the ceiling that you, you will get the outer shell of your gear quite wet. And to me, that never required the gear to be taken out of service. Um, but that's going to depend on, on local policy. And some people, if you have a second set of gear, that's outstanding. That, that's the best solution. If you can get that, if you have a second set of gear or you have a quartermaster system or some manner of being able to get another set of gear out to you immediately. And there's a lot of really creative ways that people are going about that right now. Absolutely, I think the best bet would be to take it out of service, let it dry, let it, or, or take it to get laundered to, again, this is a preliminary exposure reduction process to get the more thorough cleaning through laundering and go that route if that is available to you. But we also know that there's a lot of departments out there that don't have a second set of gear or may not have other sets that they can can make available to their firefighters. So again, it, it all just like everything else, and it's that common answer to almost every question we're asked, it depends. Right? If you have the resources to take the gear out of service, get it cleaned, 
uh, advanced cleaning or specialized cleaning or regardless of whatever it might need. And there's a great decision support tool in the new version of NFPA 1585. Excellent uh, decision tool there. Um, then use that to, to figure out what the next steps might be and get a clean, dry set of gear and wear that. Um, but if not, then, then do the best you can to reduce the risks as far as you can. But the last thing you want to do is go back to the station and keep wearing that gear. I, ideally, you have, even if it's as far as switching into, uh, you know, if you have random backup sets, like we have a special lockers for where I'm at, or even if you have somebody who's not on duty, who's similar in size, it's better to wear their gear than continue to wear that gear that we know has been contaminated. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. If, if we can get a more thorough cleaning, and, and I think I misspoke, I meant to say 50, 1851 is the, uh, the standard on uh, selection, care, and maintenance of, of structural firefighting gear, not 1585. All these numbers are all over my head now, but 1851 has that decision support. But, but we're, we're, we're going to have it in 1585. We'll have it in 1585 too. The, the numbers all sound like. <laughs> yes. You want to avoid being in contact with that gear as much as you possibly can until it is as clean as you can possibly make it. Um, but there are operational realities that we have to understand for some of these different departments that might have different budgets and different um, resources available to them. If you can get back to the station, get yourself more thoroughly cleaned up, get that gear cleaned up as, as, uh, as completely as you can. That is the best solution that we can have available to us. Nice. And we talked about cleaning our gear. Um, ideally, when we get back to the station, we're able to go and take a good quality shower. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, there's this thing called wet wipes. And you also did something on that as well. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah. Yeah. That was another one of the, um, you're going to think of back in 2015, th there weren't all of these, uh, the wipes that were specific for the fire service, whether it's responder wipes or fire wipes or rescue, I mean, all the, the number of different wipes that are available out there. Uh, so another one of the things that Kenny wanted to take a look at, and, and I give uh, I give Dr. Friend a whole lot of credit. You know, we as we're brainstorming for this project, he's like, hey, let's bring these things in. Let's we we can test some of these things, even if there's not something specific to the fire service, we can start to get an idea about how effective they might be. So at this point, um, we didn't have um, these specific, these, these fire specific wipes, shall we say. So we went to a big box store and just basically got some skin cleansing wipes, generic skin cleansing wipes. So you can get a box of, excuse me, about a hundred of them for 10 bucks. And we had the firefighters and they came out of, of the fires and sat down after they doffed all their gear, just clean their neck. And actually in this case, what we had them do is we had them clean one side of their neck so we could sample what was on one side of their neck versus the other. So there's, there's assumptions in every study, but this study, the assumption made here was that you know, their neck was uniformly exposed. So if we compare the amount of contamination on one side versus the side that we cleaned off, then we could kind of look at what's the percent reduction in, uh, in that approach. And so we had the firefighters came out, they cleaned off uh, their neck um, cleaned their hands and then took some uh, some wipe samples from it. And so the wipe samples were were treated with a uh, corn oil or, or something that can help further extract anything that might be left on the skin. We could compare one side of the neck to the other. Again, there's limitations, but 
that's about as, as uh, straightforward of an apples to apples comparison we could make. And we found with these wipes that we could get about 54% of the contamination off. And again, we're, we're still focusing on the PAH contamination here. There's other forms of contamination, uh, such as some flame retardants, such as uh, perfluorinated compounds and other things that, that we know are important to understand. But here we're just focusing on those, um, those PAH, those polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And so yeah, for a relatively low investment, you can get 55% of that contamination off of your neck. And it doesn't have to wait until you are, you know, done with the firefight and rehab. When you're changing bottles, there's an opportunity to possibly clean the skin. Even if you can't, don't take your hood off, maybe cleaning hands. If you can get to the neck, cleaning the neck, doing it as rapidly as possible. We, we kind of sometimes put ourselves into these, um, these time frames when we, when we, have to have it done by this amount of time. The, the, the reality is the quicker we can get this done, the quicker we can clean, the quicker we can stop this contamination from getting absorbed through the skin because it's a process that occurs over time. It's not that just it sits there and then after one hour, now all of a sudden starts absorbing. We're absorbing it from the time it gets onto the skin. And so the quicker you can get some of this contamination off, the better off that you are. And, and we found uh, you know, a high level of contamination on the neck and we're very effective at, at, at getting that off. But that also, and by very effective, you know, 55%, that's a heck of a lot better than having that sit there until you're done cleaning up, you know, demobilizing, maybe going through salvage and overhaul or whatever else you have to do before you can get back to the station. But it does also highlight, again, there's, there's room for improvement in there. We need to understand what, what can we do in, you know, many of these wipe companies are, are absolutely going after that full board. What can they do to improve these wipes? What are other things you can do besides using wipes? Uh, the Healthy In, Healthy Out program from uh, Kent Washington, I think it was genius. They, they figured out how to uh, tap into their research line. They could get warm water on scene and you can use other ways of cleaning with uh, soap and water. So there's a lot of different ways that you can skin this cat. Uh, and a lot of research that's going on in that area, both from some academic researchers as well as companies who are really trying to get the best product on the market for our firefighters. And, and we're going to see a whole lot, I think, in the next few years about how we can improve that from that 55% to may maybe get a little bit better than that. But I think you know, the quicker we can get some way of cleaning, the better off that we're going to be. Um, and, and, and again, another one of those things with a relatively low investment we can start to drive down that risk for some firefighters. Nice. Now, yeah, talking about the healthy and healthy out, I actually had Beth Gallup on the show here. So I can't remember yeah. what number it is, but it's back in the archives. And she talks about that, that kind of in depth about how she was able to retrofit her apparatus and to the point now where you can just order that with your apparatus. It's, it's yeah, right. considered an option now. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's, if I remember talking with her a while back, she was like 70 bucks worth of, of, of yes. plumbing that they just had a, a good mechanic who could figure that out and you know it's just one of those ways that shows that uh, you know if, if you want to address the problem there there's a lot of things that we can do it does not require a massive budget obviously if you have more budget you have more likelihood to having a second set of gear and some of those other things but but we can chip away at, at some of these risks um relatively low cost nice now I want to I want to volley up something for you that I know you're you're going to love to talk about, 
and because you mentioned kind of our hands and everything else you know one of your pet peeves is our gloves and how dirty they are um how about you just go on your tangent about that (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you for that uh that that is actually another one of those things that um you know if you go into a study with your eyes open and don't have some preconceived notions, um, you can, it's amazing what you can learn. Um, and so we, we were focused mostly on contamination on the neck, quite honestly, that, that, that's really what we had, had targeted because, you know, so w- one of our earlier studies, actually one of the first studies we did with Kenny back in 2010, there, there's a, a famous picture of a Chicago firefighter holding up the hood and showing, you know, kind of the contamination there. And we found the highest level of contamination on the neck compared to various different body sites. And then some of the work that Jeff Stoll had done with IAFF looking at the uh, fluorescent aerosol test, where they showed a whole lot of, of chemical, or it's not chemical, a whole lot of penetration through uh, the hood and neck in the interface area. And so that contamination was, was much higher on the neck than any other place on the gear or any other place on the body. So we were really kind of focused at that point uh, on the neck, but, but, you know, we also, Kenny said, you know, let's also take a look at the hands. Let's, um, let's, let's measure the hands because we're not just worried about contamination absorbing through the hands. We're often concerned about the neck because it's really thin skin, relatively thin skin. We have relatively high temperatures and relatively low protection in that area. So that's, we're really worried about absorption. But we think about the hands. I mean, that's, that's a, that's one of the most mobile parts of the body, right? I mean, think about what you get on your hands in all those different places that you can take that contamination that gets on your hands. And all of a sudden you enter wiping, right? I mean, you worked hard, you're, you're wiping the snot out of your nose or the sweat out of your eyes and all these different pathways to get contamination into the body, which by the way, we're all really much more aware of right now because of the coronavirus and everything else about how we can transfer things from our hands into our, our bodies you know, viruses, but as well as some of this contamination that we're very concerned about. And so we looked at the hands and um, it was, it was surprising in this case to find that we actually had a higher level of contamination on the hands. So the firefighters that were doing the suppression and the search and rescue. So those firefighters kind of the first in engine, that first in truck that would go in, force entry, put water on the fire, pull out two, in this case we use rescue Randy's, but two occupants of that structure they were in there during the active firefight and working in there when we're putting a lot of water on the fire. Those firefighters, all except one had contamination on their hand and and a higher magnitude, so a higher concentration of contamination on their hands than what they had on their neck. Many of those firefighters, and and this was back, they were just wearing two layer hoods, two layer knit hoods. This was before any barrier hoods were out. They didn't have contamination we could measure from their neck, but we could measure contamination from their hand. And, and that was a little bit puzzling to us until we started really thinking about why that might be. Why did this study show so much higher contamination level on the hands and more consistent contamination in the hands than on the neck, whereas some of these other studies showed it higher on the neck? And, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. We might spend a couple hours going through that, but to, to boil it down, you can ask, you can answer the same question multiple different ways. Uh, there's multiple different tests that you can use when you're trying to understand what are the risks 
and benefits of different designs or, or different gaps in your protection of the gear. And the study that we initially did with Kenny, we didn't really have firefighters applying water. They were sitting there in, in a fire in, in relatively low, um, we were working using scenarios that did not reflect how firefighters actually operate on the fire ground. Some of the other studies and tests that are used in standardized testing to look for gaps in the gear don't necessarily have firefighters doing firefighting activities. Some of the scenarios have, you know, you're bending over, you're crawling, you're standing, you're doing stretches, those sorts of things. That stresses the gear and it finds places where, where there are gaps, the contamination might come in, but that doesn't necessarily show you how you're operating on the fire ground. So in the scenario that we ran at, at, at IFSI, we were able to actually have firefighters do real room and contents firefighting, taking that concept that UL had, uh, had, had demonstrated they could do in the laboratory in Northbrook, Illinois, and taking it out to the fire ground. So we could put human subject uh, firefighters into the scenario. So they're actually doing the firefighting activities, flowing real water, real streams. And what happens, you flow water onto these room and contents, all of that soot and all that contamination starts to roll down onto the ground. And then as you're crawling through that, you're searching through that to find these occupants or to find any of the remaining fire when you're going through the overhaul stage, you get a whole lot of contamination on your gloves. And in many cases, that can actually soak around the gloves through those interface elements and contaminate your hands underneath. So we're trying to answer the same question, but we had two different ways of asking it two different ways of addressing that same question. And because we started moving towards something that we believe is a little bit more close to how firefighters really work on the fire ground, because we could add that, that level of reality, that level of full-size real-scale structure and real-scale fires and real-scale water, we could find some of that contamination that was in different places than we might have in, in some more um, simulated environments that we have in the laboratory. So that was really important for us to find that, you know, those hands need to be uh, addressed as much or more than the skin on the neck. We need to understand how we can clean those hands off, how we can reduce some of the contamination that gets to those hands. And there's a little bit of work going on now to try to understand not, you know, we, we've got new barrier layer hoods. What can you do from the gloves to reduce some of that contamination from getting into them? But also, I think importantly is what are the steps we can take when we're putting the gear on and taking the gear off that can reduce some of that cross-contamination because not all of that contamination is getting on our skin during the firefight itself. We're starting to understand that if we take the gear off in a way that allows us to contact some of the stuff that's on the outside and bring it to the inside what was just protected, we can actually uh, recontaminate or cross-contaminate our hands. And so that's a critical component that they're really digging into right now. What, what can we do besides just improving the PPE? What can we do to improve the process? Which again, does not require necessarily investment in new gear. It just requires an investment in training so we can think about how to, to do things in a slightly different manner um, that can reduce some of that contamination. So yeah, the hands are one of those pieces that, that you know, it, 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 was, it was a small part of that study, but all of a sudden it became one of those things where like, okay, we can, we can really do something here. We can really uh, start to understand what are those risks and what are some of the ways that we can drive those risks down. 
you know, it's, it's one of those things, uh, what you're talking about is kind of more of a procedural that we need mm -hmm. to do things just differently, smarter than we have. I think everybody that's listening to this at one point in time has probably taken their gloves off mm -hmm. and their hands are absolutely filthy and they've opened up some kind of bottle of water, Gatorade or whatever, and took a sip and they ingested whatever was in that fire. So usually yep. it's inhalation and absorption that we're worried about, but that is the one circumstance in which now we're adding absorption to the mix. Yeah. Yeah. The ingestion piece is, is critical, especially if you think about, you know, when we take off gloves, we often think of our gloves kind of like, a, you know, winter gloves or ski gloves or snow gloves or something like that. And, you know, the oral technique of, of biting that finger, the glove and pulling it off is, is something that, you know, as kids, we did it on a regular basis, right? When we were out playing in the snow. And in, 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 if you visualize your fire gloves the same as kind of those winter gloves, then then you don't really think about how taking those off, hopefully not with your, your teeth in your mouth anymore, but holding, you take the gloves off and you hold them just like you would with winter gloves. You're not understanding necessarily what that contamination, what contamination is on there. But if we could view it instead of how do we take off EMS gloves, right? We're, we're very respectful of taking off the nitrile or EMS or whatever those gloves are, even if there's no contamination on it. You know, I was trained exactly, you know, just like I think everyone else is to take that, those gloves out so the outside becomes the in and they get thrown away. Even if you never have patient contact, that just became the standard way that we did it because that's what we were, we were used to. So yeah, just changing that procedure, just when we take the gloves off, same thing. Every time we take them off, put them, take them off so we don't touch the inside. It, it will add an extra second to the amount of time it takes those gloves, you take the gloves off. Um, but that has to be, that has to be trained on. Um, and I, you know, it was something I was aware of for my, you know, the last few years I, I was at Illinois, we became very, um, very, um, regimented in how we would take our gloves and our hoods off. It, it was something that, that Richard Kessler and myself and the rest of our team there would, would do on a regular basis to, to get our, to, to make it muscle memory. But there were still some cases for me in particular, since I was a little older than him, that, you know, when things, when you start getting hot and things start going away and you start focusing on other things, you go back to what you know. And I found myself every once in a while sitting there, even after, you know, practicing and trying this over and over again with my gloves in my hand and my hood down around my neck because I was focusing on something else and I just resorted back to, to how I had always done it. So, you know, training and, and reinforcing the value of that is something that's going to have to be done over and over and over again. And, and gradually, I think we can get there. But, but that process, if we can start with the, the recruits, start an academy, start with those rookies, and, and train them to think about how they take off the gear just as much as how can you, how quick can you get that gear on, right? We, you have to have the, the, to don everything in a minute or 45 seconds or whatever that, that benchmark is that you're looking for. But can we use that time afterwards to reset the gear to teach also, yeah, let's, let's take this off in a controlled manner as well. And I think that can get us a long way. No, that's good. And I like to, and I've, I've kind of used it myself in the past on certain occasions, the comparing the carcinogens to the, the bloodborne pathogens, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's kind of still the same mindset. It's stuff that could hurt you later on. Right. And again, it, it's, it's a risk mitigation problem. That's a whole, that's why we use 
-hmm. BSI. That's why we have the gloves on, you know, when we get off of the rig, that's why we do so many of those, those risk control processes we do on, on medical calls. So I don't think it's, it's a huge, uh, it's, it's not a huge lift for our firefighters, but we also have to remember that, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll tell our firefighters that are, they're just unwilling to change. And, and sometimes it's just, it's hard to make change. If you had something drilled into your head or you've done something the same way for 10, 15, 20 years, what? now you're telling me I've got to change the way I take my gloves off. Yeah, that it's going to take some reinforcing and some work. About every day I hear we've been doing that since 1863 this way. Yeah. How are we going to change now? <laughs> now, now you mentioned that, uh, kind of alluded to you being uh, in Champaign, Illinois Fire Service Institute, that, that mm -hmm. you used to be there, that you're not there anymore. Correct. What happened? <laughs> well, you know, every once in my life is life's going to throw you some curveballs. Um, I had never, uh, never planned on, on uh, being anywhere but uh, at the University of Illinois Fire Service Institute. It was, it was an absolutely fantastic 15 years, but um, my wife had a, an opportunity to. Um, to, to work in the provost office at Oregon State University. So um, we tried to figure out how I could uh, continue some of the work that, that I'm doing and set up shop out here in, in Corvallis, Oregon and, uh, and support her, her career as, as she moved out here. And, and um, it's one of those things where um, never saw it coming, but you know, it, it's been a great thing for our family to, uh, to relocate and, and she's doing a fantastic work out here and, and, and we're learning new things in, in this new uh, part of the world. Uh, it, it's, it's fantastic to have the opportunity to learn from firefighters on the West Coast and, and how some things are, are done here um, and to learn what, uh, what, what they might do differently, what are some of the difference in tactics and procedures in, in their perceptions of things. So um, I, I was really fortunate when uh, we made the decision to move out here and, and to set up shop in Oregon. Um, Steve Kerber said, "Hey, uh, you know, would you mind? Uh, would you consider working uh, for UL at that location to, to continue some of the work that we're doing and, and to expand on that and to expand into uh, some of the, the West Coast concerns?" And, and uh, you know, I, I owe uh, Steve and, and Dan Majikowski and the folks at UL FSRI uh, a huge thanks for for the confidence and in, in the work that that has been done that obviously have been a huge part of from the very beginning, but the, the fact that we can continue this kind of work, uh, it's just a little bit farther road trip in order to uh, collect data these days. But yeah, uh, but yeah 15 years at the, the State Training Academy and the University of Illinois was, was a fantastic experience that, that I, uh, I greatly treasure. Oh, I want to touch on that real quick because I had the pleasure before you left of driving through town uh, mm -hmm. with my father. I was on the way to take him to uh, the Field of Dreams in Iowa, yep. passing right through you. And I actually caught you, believe it or not, when you were actually there, <laughs> which was amazing in itself. But you gave us a tour and yep. it was like, it was a playground. I mean, it really Absolutely. was. I mean, all sorts of different. I mean, if you imagine it, it, it was there. It was a, definitely over the top experience. And, and I, know, I know my father absolutely still adores you just from that trip. <laughs> Cause you just taking the time and explaining everything to them. And it was, it was such a good experience. So yeah. I appreciate that. Absolutely. It, it was a pleasure. But now that you're out there in Oregon, what are, what are some of the things that you've been working on? Well, quite honestly, a lot of the same projects. Um, I, I, 
we had so much work that was going on at, at IFSI, and I still do maintain a, an appointment at IFSI. So as, as we uh, transition uh, to, to the new leadership, new uh, director of research, uh, Dr. Masood at, at IFSI, and, and Richard Kessler is now the deputy director there, to continue some of that research, we had some projects that were multiple years in, in, in process. So uh, we couldn't just up and leave some of those projects. So uh, we're, we're looking at all sorts of uh, gear related studies, um, bringing to a close some that are looking at cleaning of the gear. Uh, we know that firefighters are um, much more aware of the need to clean the gear, some of our earlier discussion, but there's now also a concern of what happens to the gear if it's been laundered or repeatedly. How does that change its protective properties or does it change its protective properties? And then the trade-off, you know, we, we know we can do some decon that might not be as effective using the preliminary exposure reduction, but you can get 85% of contamination off. What happens if you do that repeatedly? Do you continue to get the same uh, exposure reduction capabilities there and how does that compare to laundering so we can do an apples to apples comparison of, of how much can you get off with a preliminary exposure reduction versus going in for a full um, advanced cleaning uh, so those projects are, are ongoing we actually finished the data collection for that and, and later this year we're hoping to have some some new papers and some new information out on that trade-off between repeated cleaning and how that impacts that might impact the protective properties of gear or the ability to, to clean the gear. Uh, we're starting to look at things like, well, now that we have these barrier hoods on, how, how do you compare a barrier hood versus a, a knit hood uh, in terms of protection for the firefighter, but also in terms of the, you know, there's concerns about you add the layer, does that change the heat dissipation and impact your heat stress risk? Uh, what are some of the other challenges as you add more layers? Is it, does it change your ability to hear on the fire ground? Some of the designs actually, uh, they create a little bit of noise in there. So how does that noise generation inside some of those hoods affect the firefighters? And, and, and kind of what's the wearability in general on those? So there's going to be a little bit more information coming out on that later um, this year. And that's still being done at IFSI, just, you know, take a take a plane as opposed to uh, walking, you know, 20 feet from my, my office anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're also working on, you know, again, continuing that cardiovascular and chemical exposure risk project. Um, interfaces are, are one of those things where there's been a lot of work done by manufacturers to tighten down, you know, the interface. Most of the gear, you know, we just have that overlap between the coat and the pants or between the coat and the hood. And hopefully by those two pieces of material on top of each other, that stops a lot of those contaminants from getting in through those layers. So again, that's the traditional design. And, and now we know many of the, the major manufacturers have developed these little cuff or, or skirt type of interface elements that can tighten down yeah. and not allow as much of that uh, transmission in and out of there. Uh, but we're also looking at what, what else can we do behind that? What happens if we seal up those interfaces? What happens if we connect different pieces of, of the gear together so you don't have that interface anymore? They're, they're directly attached to each other. How does that affect the ingress of contaminants into the firefighter? Um, but also, again, if we do that, we know that that is reducing some of the airflow that might be important for cooling. So we want to understand, okay, how does that impact the exposure risk, but also what is that doing to uh, the potential impacts on heat stress for the firefighters? Do, does that have an impact? And, and if so, what is the magnitude and what's the trade-off 
between each of those. So these designs are coming out. So we want to look at, we're looking at right now at some things that are on the market as well as some things that, that might be envisioned in the future. And quite honestly, you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we would be doing data collection with human subjects this summer of 2020. Uh, unfortunately, that, that's not been, um, it's not an option for us at this point. We're waiting for everything to open back up so that we can resume those tests. But that's going to be slightly delayed as a result of, of um, you know, the precautions that have been put in place recently. So those are projects that we're continuing to do at that partnership with UL versus and IFSI and NIOSH that that remains. Uh, but again, that's that's really scratching the surface. We're we're interested in and the next steps are looking at what are some of the other things that that we can control. And, and training is one of those areas where I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions that still exist out there. Live fire training has evolved uh, drastically over the past few years and and really want to understand what is it that the training fires are presenting to the individuals in terms of that risk. Uh, we know NFPA 1403 has a lot of guidance related to the fuel packages that can be used for live fire training, but there's also a little bit of gap of, of understanding they're related to engineered wood products. Uh, it, it does not specifically address engineered wood products, and we know a lot of places have um, have started to use engineered wood products like OSB or plywood or some of these other things as part of their fuel package. And we just touched on that in a study uh, with Kenny a couple of years ago. We, we compared a pallet and straw fire to uh, a fire with OSB. And we saw that there were some increased risks when we add these engineered wood products. And it's not surprising if you've been in a training fire when you have those other products in there that produces a different type of smoke, which might have some benefits from a training scenario, right? There, there's certain cues you might be able to pick up on, certain fire behavior you might be able to generate with those extra products. But what is the trade-off? And, and when is when might it be useful? When might it not be useful? So that's one of the things we want to take a look at. And, and when we say OSB, we've got to realize that there's there's four recognized classes of OSB, and there's various different manufacturers in there. And now we've got some uh, manufacturer producing OSB with all natural materials, so soy-based materials, other wax-based panels that are, are being introduced. And, and there's, there's individuals across the country who are, are using these things, and, and many are hoping and, and believing that these are better than just going out and buying a, a typical piece of, of OSB. So we'd like to be able to, to really measure that quantify that and and hopefully even develop a process so we could say all right instead of waiting for people to use this when that next greatest thing is, is being uh, promoted can we test it on a laboratory scale relatively easily and say yep this is some of the this is the trade-off and risks compared to the other fuels that you might be using so again we can do we can look at substituting those fuels in a manner that controls our risks at, at a relatively high level. We can understand where those risks are coming from, from the source of, of the fuel. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can go about this. We can, we can look at the gear. We can look at the process of, of taking the gear off and on, kind of some of those administrative controls. Or we can look at substitution controls, particularly in training, where we might say, okay, yeah, I, I'm going to swap out this risk for that. So we're really trying to look at, I think if, as we move forward from here, we're looking at the hierarchy of controls 
right? What are, are the different levels that we can affect a reduction in risk uh, in the fire service? And we often rely on PPE. And we have to do that because, uh, you know, I should say the assumption is we have to do that because there's so many unknowns on the fire ground. And that there are certainly some things that we cannot control on, on, a, on a response, but there are other things that we might be able to control and put processes in place and then on training move up to a higher level. So we're really trying to understand what are those things that we can do in that holistic view of it's cancer is one of the concerns and a critically important concern that we have on the fire ground, but we need to understand what are the rest of the concerns and a job that has to get done. Uh, we're never going to make firefighting a clean job. We might be able to reduce how we are exposed to those, fires, those, those products of combustion, but at the end of the day, that's part of the work environment and part of the job that we have to do in order to affect saving lives and property. That's some exposures that we're willing to accept, just like the exposure to heat and flame on the fire ground but we also want to figure out how we can reduce all of those risks to a, as low a level as we can reasonably achieve. That's perfect. You know, I, I think whenever I, I do talk and a lot of the stuff I use is obviously from you and, and some of your colleagues, but the bottom line is we're going to get exposed, but we got to do everything we can to reduce that exposure as much as possible. Right. And Absolutely. you just, you just said that much more eloquently than I could ever do. <laughs> no, you nailed it. And, and you know, the other thing that we, we'd spend a whole lot of time talking about gear and talking about, you know, the stuff on the fire ground. And if we, if we really want to look at it as a holistic perspective, we got to, we got to consider everything, right? We got to consider um, medical evaluations for our firefighters. We, we've got to consider nutrition. We've got to consider uh, all of these uh, fitness and all of these other things that, you know, I know many of your other guests have talked about. I know Sarah Janke does a great job discussing some of these things. It's a holistic view of how we can eliminate some of our risks. And, and if we can do some of those things uh, at the fire station to drive our risks down, then we might not have that overall elevated risks that we see in the fire service. Yeah, uh, kind of a nod to our pal Todd LaDuke. And he nails it, just surviving the fire service. There's so many different things that go into this. Mm -hmm. so, and that we have to look at and try our best to do to make it on the other side. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we also need to make sure we realize some of the, some of the great things in the fire service. We talk so much about some of these risks, but uh, we also need to make sure we highlight some of those benefits, the camaraderie in, in the brotherhood and, and sisterhood and, and all of the things that we get from, from being a member of the fire service um, is, is a really powerful thing. Uh, and, and we need to, to make sure we highlight some of those and reinforce those things as well, because that, that allows you to take some of the risks for the other members of the fire department. It also allows you maybe to speak out and say, hey, you know, maybe it is important that we do this decon, or maybe it is important. Don't, why, why don't you wipe, wipe off your face? You know, if you have soot on your face, you can't always see it. So if you're your brother and sister's keeper, say, hey, you know what, you got some soot on your face. Why don't you spend some time to wipe that off? And if you have that brotherhood and sisterhood, you, you can step up and have those conversations with each other. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that attracts so many people to the profession. Yes, absolutely. You're, you are right on. Well, let me 
get you out of here on this. I know you've, I appreciate your time doing this. I know you you're still busy with everything else, even though you're actually at home for once. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I want to do the 25 question with you, not go over 25 questions. Cause that would just be rude. You don't have any, nobody has time for that, but That's let's lot. do a few of these if you don't mind. So okay. these are more just kind of personal fun questions. If you would just throw out a number and I'll, I'll, I'll read you the question. All right. Um, how about number four? What was the first album you ever had? The probably first... cassette tape, probably, right? Oh, man. Well, I mean, are, are you going to, if we go back, no, actually it was an eight track. Um, okay. I remember the first eight track, and now I didn't buy this, so this was provided by my mom, uh, was uh, Chipmunk Rock. <laughs> nice. So again, you know, this was an eight track. I was, was about five years old, but Actually, the first album I remember buying was a slightly different genre, uh, Metallica, Master of Puppets. So, you know, oh. we, we wow. spanned the range here. What? A... <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Chipmunks yeah. to Metallica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I still have a pretty broad range of, of musical interests, but I, I guess I would tend more to the Metallica these days than the chipmunk rock. Very, very nice. Have you ever seen them live? Metallica? Yes. No, I have not. Uh, what about the chipmunks? <laughs> no, I haven't seen them live either. <clears throat> no, no, I, I have not, though. Actually, the last, uh, last band I saw live was uh, in, in Portland. We happened to, uh, to catch Social Distortion and Flogging Molly, which was a, a oh, fantastic nice. uh, concert. And uh, Flogging Molly, was, was, I love their, their energy. And in Social D, it was their, their 40th anniversary tour, which... I guess made me feel a little bit older than I thought I should be. <laughs> that was a great show. Very nice. Nice. I, uh, I just, again, we're dating ourselves, but I just saw the dropkick Murphys at Fenway park. You know, oh. the, the, the park is closed <clears throat> down. It's just them and they're in the field. And I thought that was just so cool. Yeah. That that's uh, definitely one of my bucket list concerts to go see. Nice. All right. How about another number? Another number. All right. Let's go with 25. Favorite professional sports team? Oh, man. Well, um, being an Illinois kid, uh, do I have to pick just one or can I uh, – basically Chicago sports. So I'd say started off being the Chicago Bears uh, okay. were, were my uh, first sports team I watched regularly, uh, though the Cubs were kind of that love-hate relationship, um, especially most of my formative years. Though the last couple of years have been quite fun, particularly for my my friends from Cleveland, uh, Sean DeCrane and I had a, a fun back and forth about the the World Series a few years back. Uh, but now my son has gotten into hockey, and so uh, I'd actually have to say the Blackhawks are are uh, probably the team that I follow the most closely uh, nowadays to to support his his love for that sport. Did you grow up watching the Bulls at all? I did, uh, and so yeah, but I. I I am not a huge uh, professional basketball fan. I was definitely a Fairweather fan when Jordan, you know, back in the nineties, that was did definitely you, something to pay. Did attention. you get to see him live ever? Did you ever go to the United Center no, or anything? No, okay. no, never did. I just, I think about the last dance and it's just, I mean, you were right there. So yeah. Yeah. No, no, it didn't have the opportunity to go in and, and see them at, at that point in my life, but uh, it was fun to watch them. Uh, especially at that point I was at the university of Illinois for, for part of that run. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to be watching Bulls games down there at, at, uh, at Champaign. 
Nice. Very cool. All right. Let's, how about one more? One more? One more good one. One more good one. All right. Well, let's go with number one. All right. This, <laughs> I've had some interesting answers on this one. Uh, I think it's pretty fun. It could be fun. What was your first job? What was my first job? First job. Oh, boy. Well, my parents owned a, uh, as I was growing up, owned a little mom and pop motorcycle shop. So uh, my very first, one of my first memories was actually my dad uh, you know, lifting me up on, on, on the workbench and taking the side case off of a, a Boltaco Alpina, which is an old motorcycle that's not even made anymore. So I, I grew up in, in the motorcycle shop. So, you know, from, from spinning wrenches, as, you know, as a two or three year old, I guess the first time I got paid for something was, was sweeping the floor and, and cleaning bikes, you know, probably when I was seven or eight years old. And, and that moved on to, you know, becoming a mechanic at, at, a, at a young age. And uh, so that was my, my first job, I guess, would be as a, uh, a cleanup boy slash mechanic. Let me ask you this then. Uh, same okay. question, but different. Uh, what was the first job in which you actually got a real paycheck? A real paycheck. And everything. Not working for Something mom. That wasn't for your parents, yes. <laughs> well, my first job actually with, with a real paycheck uh, was actually at Ingersoll Milling Machine Company in, in Rockford, Illinois. So uh, I was a mechanical engineer down at, at U of I. And actually, my goal, what, the reason I went into mechanical engineering is that you know, I wanted to, to teach those dang engineers all the mistakes they made on on designing motorcycles so i was going to go work for harley davidson and and you know teach those those guys a lesson that didn't work out but uh a milling machine company uh in, in rockford uh, a friend of a friend was working there and i got a summer internship working for them um and and designing uh machine tools that basically take a, a raw casting, which was a, an engine block, and on the other end spits out something that would go uh, onto an assembly line and, and put the whole engine together. So a whole lot of time uh, doing design work, uh, and then a couple summers later actually worked out on the shop floor supporting the uh, individuals who were, were doing the, the, the um, assembly and testing of, of those machine tools. So that continued on and, and you know, that uh, was, it was a really great experience to understand how to apply engineering in, in, a, um, in a very traditional manner. Um, but I never, never had the fortune of working in the fire service until I, I happened to stumble across the IFSI um, organization back in 20, uh, 2004 when, when this research program began. So that was my first introduction to fire-based research was, was 2004. And, uh, that was a, a very happy coincidence uh, from my perspective. Nice. Very good. Now, if my listeners wanted to try to track you down, get some information about all the papers you've done, where can they find some of this information at? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned earlier, I'm incredibly fortunate now to, to be working with the team at ULFSRI. And so we have uh, all of this information that, that we are, are putting out there. We're also putting on the website at UL and, and we're, we're putting out on social media every, every new paper or publication or online training program that comes out. Uh, it's being blasted out on the, the UL uh, social media network as well as the website. So um, ULFirefightersafety.org as well as the Fire Safety Academy. I know many people are, are familiar with that. We're also uh, maintaining a toolkit at IFSI. 
So there's a cardiovascular and chemical exposure risks toolkit. Um, and that, that website is too long for me to, to say right now, but if you just Google cardiovascular and chemical exposure risks, that toolkit comes up and in every single paper that we are producing, we're paying for the copyright so that we can post it right there at one location. And you can see all the different papers. I think right now we're on the order of about 12 uh, manuscripts that are on there. And we're just gonna continue to build that in perpetuity. And it's also got uh, tools for firefighters that wanna understand a translation. You might not want the academic papers, but you wanna see how does this apply to me? So we have things like our translation documents, some reports that are intended for the fire service that are all freely available there, as well as links to webinars and links to various different online training programs that are based on this material. All that stuff is freely available there. So you can get to it from the IFSI website, you can get to it from the UL website. And again, constantly pushing material out on social media. We're trying to get the word out as far and wide as we can. So still presenting this information to anyone that will listen to us. And I'm always happy to, to take any questions that anyone might have. So my email address is, is very simple. It's gavin.horn at ul.org. So happy to take any questions. And, and if anyone has, uh, wants to understand how to apply this information, happy to help uh, you work through that and understand that uh, with emails directly. Perfect. Again, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done and everything you're going to continue to do uh, regarding this, the firefighter research. We are all better off because of all the work that you and your team is doing. So truly from the heart, I appreciate you. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to this podcast, five-star rating, and uh, share with all your, your friends. And with that, Dr. Gavin Horn, thank you, Tyson. Thank you, sir.